Aaron is, Aaron is right. We are not professionals, and we are leasing a building. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, children, you're going to find your words in their normal place tonight. You'll see that there are several, so I'm not going to uh, run through those, but you will see what they are, and maybe mom and dad will whisper those in your ears if you need help, um, but they are there for you to be listening for. Well, as a prodigal son, some believe it's considered to be uh, the most famous story ever told. I personally um, think it's a toss-up between that and, of course, the Good Samaritan. Um, but what's interesting is if we were to go to the square, like if we had gone out last night during the... I can't do that. If we, were to, if we had uh, gone out to... Um, as we were at the starlighting last night and asked other people, you know, what's the purpose of uh, the prodigal son? We would have probably received many different answers, um, and not many of them may have been accurate. And, and in fairness, if I were to ask if we were to go into any church today and ask that same question, what is the primary purpose of the prodigal son? We would get many different answers, but we might not get uh, many right ones. And what I mean by that is the, the heading there at uh, chapter 15, verse 11, that says prodigal son isn't necessarily accurate. It, it doesn't describe truly the purpose of the story that Jesus tells. Right? Because the primary character within the story of the prodigal son is actually not the younger son. The primary character and the primary purpose of, of the prodigal son or the story of the prodigal son is, is actually the older son that comes in verses 25 to 32. You see, in the story, though um, they were his primary target, Jesus isn't just talking to the scribes and Pharisees. He's also talking to or addressing the tax collectors and sinners as well. That's why we read verses 1 and 2. So he's talking to detractors. He's talking to casual observers. He's talking to uh, inquisitive seekers. And he's talking to those who considered themselves to be disciples or followers. So as everyone, everyone in that great crowd, as they hear, hear Jesus tell this story... They all could ask two questions. The first question is, who am I in this story? And the second question would be, well, what do I do? Or how do I respond being this particular person in the story? And those are questions that we all should ask as we read the story, as we hear the story, as we hold up this story as the mirror that Jesus intends for it to be, we look into that mirror and we need to ask, what, what will we see? What will I see? Who am I and what am I going to do? How should I respond? And so to help us navigate through that, I'm going to come back to those questions at the end. But to walk through this outline, I've, I've put, um, or to walk through this story, I've put an outline together that's found in the normal place in the back of your bulletin. There are three things we want to look at. We want to look at the younger son's response we want to see the father's reception, and then we want to see the older son's retort. Okay, so we're going to look 
at the repentance, the reception, and the retort. And as is our custom, let's, I don't know about you, but I need to pray. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in in prayer before we begin, all right? Uh, Father, uh, by your Spirit, uh, we ask, as we do every week, that you would grant power to the preaching of your word. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We ask that you would grant us the ability to uh, praise and apprehend the truth regarding Christ and his gospel. So in these moments, would you awaken our attention and would you use, would you speak to us and use the text uh, to convict us and challenge us? And then would you also refresh us and encourage us and comfort us? I'm weak and needy to this task which you've called me to. And I'm in need of your assistance and your support and your strength and the filling of your spirit and, and your grace that I might do something good for you tonight. So help me to communicate clearly and fluently and with fervency and with grace. And I pray, Father, that you would be glorified, the Lord Jesus would be exalted, and that your church would be edified and And it's in Christ's name that I pray these things. Amen. Well, Jesus begins this story by um, letting us know that a younger son has come to his father and he's asking for his share of the family inheritance. Um, In this case, with this family, a father of two, he's asking for one-third of that inheritance, one-third of his assets, one-third of his property, Um, And that would typically be given upon the father's death. And of course, the older son, because the younger son's getting a third, the older son's going to get two-thirds. And it was uncommon for uh, the head of the house, or it wasn't uncommon for the head of the household to divide things prior to his death. But it was very uncommon for him to actually give them the ability to sell the property that had been given to them. So... In other words, ownership could be transferred, but the income remained in the control of the father. So if any of you have had uh, parents that are aging or maybe even before, I remember um, unloading my father-in-law's roll-top desk. Um, This was mid-90s, right? He passed away in 2013, but in the mid-90s, we were unloading that, and, and I remember unloading that and saying, I've got dibs. Um... Ownership, and he said, fine by me, right? Ownership passed, uh, but I don't have the rights to it as of yet, right? It was mine, but not really mine. This is what's going on, right? The the son has asked, uh, the father has given it, but the father has gone an extra step, and he said, you also have control of the income. And we hear that request, and we say to ourselves, "This, this kid is greedy, this kid is selfish, and, and rightfully so. I mean, by asking for the inheritance that was traditionally bequeathed upon the father's death, the son was, but he was more than selfish and he was more than greedy. He was actually wishing his father was dead. Not something that I was doing back in the mid-90s, but he was literally saying, I wish you were dead. No love, no connection, No loyalty to speak of between the son and his father. He only wanted what his father had. He didn't want his father 
He wanted what his father had. He wanted the gifts, not the giver. He wanted to be free from his father's control. He didn't want to be under his thumb anymore. He wanted to be complete and totally independent. He, wanted, he didn't want anybody telling him what to do or not to do anymore. He wanted to do what he wanted to do, when he wanted to do it, how he wanted to do it, with whom he wanted to do it, for how long he wanted to do it. He no longer wanted anybody telling him no. He obviously knew what was best for him, as most 18-year-olds do. He had it all figured out. And that included fulfilling all of his wants and desires. And he didn't want the shackles of responsibility and obligation or commitment. And at the end of verse 12, most of us are shocked when we read that the father did as he asked. And he gave him his third. And he let him go. So the son quickly gathers everything that's now his. He liquidates, turns it into cash. And then as fast as he can, puts as much distance between his father and his brother and himself that he can. And when he arrives in that far off country, he starts the spending spree. He spends his money foolishly and quickly and wastefully and he's spending on what Jesus describes as reckless living. And reckless living refers to he was disregarding all the rules. He was um, wildly and excessively and shamelessly immoral in his behavior that included but not limited to sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, drunkenness, and orgies to use Paul's language in Galatians 5. He was doing those things, the kind of stuff that's done in secret that Paul says in Ephesians 5 was shameful to even talk about. His one goal had become immediately gratifying every sinful desire and want, no matter how how much it costs and no matter who it hurt, whether it be himself or somebody else. Again, He was in charge, and no one was going to tell him no anymore. Well, as everyone in the room knows, money um, only goes so far. And reckless living isn't cheap. So before he knew it, he was out of money. And to make matters worse, verse 14 says a famine hit the land, and he's now in need. He's in great need. And to his credit, he goes out and finds a job. Imagine that. And he goes to work, but the only problem is it doesn't help. It actually makes things worse. Because the only job he can find is to work for a Gentile. And the only work that this Gentile has for him is to feed the pigs. And then with this meager salary and with the famine in the land, right, all he can think of is to eat the slop that he fed the pigs that the Gentile owned. So the bottom line is, he is at very bottom. He's at at the bottom. He's utterly humiliated. He can't go any lower. What had started in his heart had worked out into his actions and his choices, and that left him physically and spiritually unclean and hungry and alone and with no one to 
call, no one to count on, no one to care for him. Right? It's that typical downhill slide that results from unhindered sin. Well, in verse 18, Jesus said the man came to himself or he came to his senses. Right? He awakens from his stupor created by his sin binge and he begins to finally to think logically and to think rationally about what's going on, about his situation. And he came to the conclusion, after, after giving it some thought, he, he came to the conclusion that sin didn't really offer him what he thought it would, and, and home wasn't as bad as he once believed it to be. As one commentator put it, where he once was sick for home, or sick of home, he's now homesick. But it, was, it wasn't simply feeling bad for the consequences. He had come to the place where he was sad and, and mourning his own sin. He was in agreement that he, that he had done something wrong. He knew he was wrong. He knew he was in the wrong and he was feeling deep remorse over it. But to go home meant he needed to humble himself. Right? He needed to swallow his pride and he needed to acknowledge his sin. He would have to acknowledge he had sinned against God and he had sinned against his father. In other words, he'd need to repent. He needed to own his sin. He, he didn't need to dismiss it. He didn't need to explain it away. He didn't need to rationalize. He didn't need to blame his dad. He didn't need to blame his brother. He needed to take responsibility for himself and for his sin. And not only would he have to acknowledge his sin, but he would also have to accept the consequences of his actions. He knew he had, to, he had forfeited his rights as a son. And so the only way that he was going to be welcomed back, and he knew this, the only way to come back was to come back as a hired servant. He was at the mercy of his father, and he knew that, and he didn't like that before, but it was okay now. He knew it was better than the alternative. So he got up and started making his way home. And you can imagine that trip home and the things that were going through his mind and the scenario that he was going over and, the, and what he was going to say, rehearsing it over and over and over in his head. But nothing, no matter how much he thought about it, no matter how much he re rehearsed what he was going to say, nothing prepared him for the reception that he received. Nothing at all. And that brings us to the Father's reception in verse 20. The Bible says about while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now we've got to think back. Think back about how since his son has left, the father has longed for his return. He's never stopped longing for him to come home. He's thought about him over and over. He, he hasn't written him off. He hasn't disowned him. He hasn't set him aside. Even though his son wished he were dead, he has not thought that in any way. He has never given up hope that he's alive. He's never given up hope that he would one day return. And on that particular day, he probably did what he did every day. And he walks from inside the house out to the door and he begins to trace the trail, the path that that leaves or that, that came to and from the house, and, and he would trace that with his eyes every day, and he would get to the end of that trail where it would disappear in the distance. 
And he would just think about his son, hoping one day that he would come back, praying that he would return. And he'd get to that. Every day he'd get to that end of that, that trail. And on a typical day, he would, he would sigh and turn and walk back in the house. But on this day, when he gets to the end of that trail, and he looks, he sees a figure coming up and over the hill. He can't quite make out who it is, but it doesn't take long before he realizes the day's come. It's him. He's come back. And you can imagine the joy that welled up inside of him, the compassion Jesus says the compassion welled up deep down within his bowels. And he can't contain himself. He doesn't stay. So he doesn't sit back and stay and think, okay, what are all the lessons that I can make sure he understands he's learned? He doesn't sit back and wait and say, hmm, what, what kind of questions can I ask him about where he's been and what he's been doing? He doesn't sit back and he doesn't make a list of all the things that he's going to impose that, that the son is going to have to carry out his penance. He doesn't sit back and rehearse his own list of I told you so's. That compassion drives him to hike, to hike up his robe, tie it up, and sprint to his son. And when he does, he does two things. First, he exposes himself to public humiliation. Right? It, was, it was completely undignified for a man to run, especially of his stature, let alone hike up his robe high enough where everybody could see his underwear. And he sprints. And then the second thing he does is he, he saves his son from being exposed to public humiliation. So he himself is exposed to it, but he keeps and, and, and he keeps his son from experiencing the same thing because had the townspeople reached him first, they would have carried out this public cutting off ceremony and he in fact would have been humiliated. He would have been publicly disgraced for what he had done by bringing disgrace upon his family. And the father says, I'm not going to let him, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to beat him to it. And saves him from the embarrassment. And when he reaches him, he doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't admonish him. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't condemn him. He puts his arms around him and grabs him and pulls him close and then begins to kiss him repeatedly over and over and over and over again. And notice in verse 20, he did it before the son ever said a word. The son didn't get out anything that he had rehearsed, at least up until that point, one commentator said when he left home, he gave his father an unqualified rejection. But when he came back, he received unqualified acceptance. The father didn't return what was given to him. And this was, of course, was not on the list of scenarios that the son had been running through his mind at all. But his father's overwhelming and unexpected response didn't change his mind. He still wanted to say what he had been rehearsing. And as a matter of fact, what the father's done is probably 
made it easier. It's made it easier for him to say what he said. So in the midst of the kisses, right, he says, Father, I've sinned. I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he can't get out the second line that he's rehearsed, right? He's worked really hard at remembering this, and and the father interrupts. Even though he was exactly right, he was not worthy to be called a son. The father wants to make sure that he understands that he's being received just that way. He's being received as as a son because he's being restored as a son. Look at verse 22, it says, But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put on a ring, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. It's an amazing picture. Because the one who owed a great debt for squandering a third of his father's inheritance, the one who should have come bearing gifts to his father to show his remorse for squandering his you know, his possessions and his property, right? He comes empty-handed, nothing to give. The one who should remain remained barefooted and in servants' robes and eating in the servants' quarters, he gets a robe, he gets a ring, he gets shoes, he gets a cow, and he's invited to a feast in which he's the guest of honor. Why? Verse 24. The father says, this is my son. This is my son. He was dead. He's now alive. This is my son. He was lost. Now he's found. And Jesus says they began to celebrate. Right? Overwhelming joy. So unexpectedly and overwhelmingly, the the son received forgiveness, he received acceptance, reconciliation, restoration from a loving father by grace alone. And I don't know about you, but I wish the story ended there, right? It's a high note. It doesn't. He continues. Verse 25, right? The older son's been working in the field. He's probably been supervising servants. And as he's making his way back home, he begins to hear music, and he begins to hear clapping, and he begins to hear joyous yelling, right? All a part of music and dancing. And he's confused, because that would mean that there's a party, and he as the son would have been asked at something like that, at a celebration like that, to actually receive guests and welcome them and to serve them on behalf of the father, right, as the oldest son. And and he wasn't asked. He doesn't even know what's going on. And so he yells to his servant, what, what's happening? And the servant says, your brother's come. And your father's killed a fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And the older son jumps up and down for joy and begins to sprint to the house. It's not what it says. The son becomes Indignant. So much so that rather than take his place of responsibility, he belligerently remains outside. He doesn't go in. And in doing so, he humiliates his father. Because it's blatant defiance and a lack of honor. 
But notice what the father does. The father doesn't remain inside. What does he do? Again, he exhibits his love for his sons and he does the undignified thing and he walks outside to go meet the older son. And when he comes out, he responds in just exactly the same way that he did without the kisses, right? But, he, but he's responding in the same way to the older son because he doesn't admonish him. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't shame him or rebuke him. He entreats him. In other words, he, he comes to him and he urges him comfortingly to come inside and to join the party because his brother is back. Please. He doesn't, even ask, he doesn't even ask him to fulfill the role that he was required to fulfill. He simply says, come inside and join the party. But the son's too angry. He's focused on himself. Everything is driven to, to the middle of who he is. So what can only be described, it's, it's just a complete lack of respect, just complete disrespect for his father. And he challenges him and he looks at him and he says, look, I've done everything. I have been a slave. I've been your slave day after day after day for years. I've never been disobedient until right now, right? The irony. But I've never been disobedient, and you've never killed a calf for me. You've never held a party in my honor. You've never celebrated me. And what he didn't say but was surely on his mind was, you know, to make matters worse, all that you're doing, right, you split the money, or you gave him his third, he squandered it, so who's paying for this celebration? Me. It's coming out of my inheritance. And in that moment, he exhibited his own heart. He exhibited his own heart that was exactly like his brother's. No difference. He too had nothing but disdain for his dad. He too didn't want his father. He wanted what his father had. His self-righteousness and his judgmentalism was blatant. He didn't, he didn't serve his father or obey his father out of gratitude. It was just, what can I get from this man? How can I earn a greater reward than I already have? He wanted the gifts, not the giver. Yes, he was, there was outward conformity, but it was deceptive. Because while he may have appeared to be living on the straight and narrow, his desires were no different than his brothers. Look at verse 30. When the son of yours came, who, devoured, or who had devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf. He's angry. He's so angry he, doesn't even, he can't even call his brother his brother. And he couldn't celebrate his return, even if, even if it was the right thing to do. He was more concerned about the brother paying for what he had done. He wanted justice. He wanted what was fair, at least in his own eyes. But we have to ask this question, how did he know what his brother had been doing? How do we know what he had spent his money on. He wasn't with him. He hadn't talked to him since he got back. 
what happened. I think it's very likely that he assumed what his brother had done, and he based that assumption on what he would have done if he had been the one to go. He knew what he would do. He knew what was in his own heart and what he would have done had he decided not to stay home but to leave. He would have done the same thing if the shoe had been on the other foot. He would have acted the same way. And so because this is what I would do, I'm assuming that this is what he would do. So in the end, the brothers were no different. Yeah, one was immoral and one was moral. Right? They both wanted, even though one was immoral, one was moral, they both wanted the same things. Both were inwardly rebellious and callous toward their father. Both were at odds and needed to be reconciled and restored. Yes, one went far off, one stayed home. Both were lost. One went far off, one stayed home. Right? The, the older was simply more respectable on the outside than the younger, and the younger was, wasn't as deceptive. But they were both far off. Both were lost and needed to be found. One repented and a celebration took place and one was hard-hearted and he couldn't join in the party. So now to the questions that, we, that I posed as we began. First I want to ask those who were a younger brother at one time but have turned in faith to Christ, and you're now a believer, you're a Christian, and I want to ask you, over time, have you become an older brother? Have we become older brothers? And I know this isn't going to surprise you one, one bit, but I've taken some things from Philip Ryken, and I'm going to ask some questions to help us answer that question, to help us flesh those out a little bit, all right? He does this really well. Um, so I'm going to ask these 10 questions I want you to just think about. And if you want these later, I'll send them to you. Do we ignore the desperate situation of people who are spiritually lost and fail to pursue relationships that might reconcile them to God? Do we look down on people who are outside the church and unable to attract them with Christ-like love? Do we have outward reputations for doing the right thing, but on the inside have cold hearts toward God? Do we cherish secret sins, including some we've never committed, but most certainly would if we could get away with it? Do we resent it when we do not get the praise we think we deserve? Do we get angry when we get overlooked and others are elevated past us? Do we embrace a performance-based mindset in which our standing with God rises and falls based on the fulfillment of our religious duties? Do we think we're good people deserving a great reward rather than bad people saved by grace? Are we quick with judgmental remarks about people who do not meet our moral standards and with self-righteous assumptions about our own spiritual accomplishments? And then finally, are we running to meet wandering sinners? 
And when we find them, are they drawn to us? If we answer yes to any of the first nine and answer no to the last, the second question comes in, how, would, how should we respond? What do we do? How do we change it? And of course the answer is we must repent. We must repent and when we do we will find the arms of our Father outstretched, ready to take us in. May that be so. Now for everyone in the room, whether you're a believer or a Christian that's gone astray, or whether you're a non-believer or a non-Christian who has never come to Christ, the second question is the same as the first. Who are you in this story? Who are you? Are you the younger brother? Are you estranged from God? Do you simply want his stuff and not him? Do you want to share in his blessings without sharing in his life and fellowship? Are you exercising your independence and rebelling against his rule in your life? Have you been exercising your freedom to live immorally and self-indulgently only to find yourself enslaved to your flesh and your sinful appetites? Are you seeking the immediate gratification of your own wants and desires because you're in bondage to your sin? Are you on the way to rock bottom? Or have you already made it? And believe that you are too bad to receive forgiveness? Or are you the older brother? Are you estranged from God? Do you simply want his stuff and not him? Do you want to share in his blessings and not his fellowship and life? Are you exercising your independence and rebelling against his rule in your life, right? They're, they're the same in many respects. But have you been exercising your obligation to live morally and self-righteously only to find you are a bitter resentful, judgmental failure? Are you continuing to maintain your transactional relationship between yourself and God, hoping the more you do, the more merit and favor you'll earn? Are you hiding from grace behind the facade of justice-seeking? And are you on the way to rock bottom? Or have you arrived? And do you find yourself too good to need forgiveness? Those are the options with the sons. Too bad to receive it. Too good to need it. Here's the good news. Whether you're younger younger brother or older brother or some type of hybrid between the two, the answer is the same. You've heard me say this on many occasions. There is no sin so small that doesn't need forgiveness and there is no sin so great that can't be forgiven. And both, or all of them, 
are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. Him alone. We saw from the first two stories of chapter 15 last week that God is a God who reveals himself as a God who pursues sinners. He pursues them. He seeks that which is lost until they are found. And he does so in Christ by the Spirit. And in both cases, or in either case, for both brothers, God is is opening his arms to embrace you. He's not waiting for you to come so that he can condemn you or rebuke you or admonish you or shame you in any way. He's waiting for you to come so that he can forgive you and restore you. He's not waiting for you to clean yourself up and then come. He's looking for you so he can clean you up. And all you have to do is humble yourself. Swallow your pride. Acknowledge your sin. Agree with God in regards to your sin. In other words, repent. Own your sin. Stop trying to just pass it off or dismiss it or explain it away or rationalize it. Stop blaming other people. Own it. You alone are responsible for it. Take it. And then look to Christ for the forgiveness you need. Take it up and take it to the cross where you will find forgiveness. Because remember, brothers and sisters, he humbled himself and endured the ultimate rejection and humiliation in his suffering and death so that you could be accepted and forgiven, reconciled and restored, adopted into his family as a son and daughter of God. He who was a son became a servant so we could become children. He was stripped of his robe, taken to the cross, despised its shame, all for the joy set before him. We're declared sons and daughters because he was obedient to death on on the cross. He came to serve, not to be served, and became a ransom for many That's why he rejoices while he searches and he rejoices when those are found, when he finds those who are his. And the second question for all of us again is, what do we do? How do we respond? All that being said, how how do we respond? Will we receive him? Will you receive him? Will you reject him? Will you look to him? Will you look away from him and to yourself? Will you repent? Will you harden your heart? It's a life or death decision. And the question is, which will you choose? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. Water the hearts of those who've heard your word preached, and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness for your glory and our good. And for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray these things. Amen.